Monday, Monday afternoon, theologians. Well, here we are at season eight, episode two, 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 two. And we're continuing the discussions we started last time with a little introduction to this controversial but important topic. End time. And one thing we've noticed already in brushing up on the different views of end times events is that some of the things in eschatology differ, not so much in the main events themselves, but in the order or the timing of those events. And there are differences regarding whether key events will happen in the near future or a bit farther out in the more distant future. But one thing is for certain, and it does not change, and that is the new creation. It will most certainly come at the last of the order of all of the events that we're going to talk about. That's one of the most encouraging things I can think about in terms of this end times discussion, because it's not controversial. I'm not going to have a controversy about that. I want the new creation, so I don't care when it comes. It's going to happen. And it's the most important thing, regardless of all the other orders or timings that people come up with, the other events in eschatology, we can be certain that for those who have placed their faith in Christ, there is going to be a new creation with an eternal life that God has planned ahead of time with no sin to mar the picture or mess things up. And that's a really positive thing to which we can look forward and it's important that we say right up front, no matter what happens next, everyone has a choice to follow Jesus. And when they do, they can be assured that their name will be written in what the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life, which is another way of saying you are assured of a place in heaven because you belong to Christ. No kidding. That's right. That's the good news. And you don't have to guess at it or hope or cross your fingers that just maybe you'll wind up in heaven. You can know without a doubt, with confidence, that because Jesus paid the ransom price on the cross to atone for your sin, there is a place for you. And that is certainly no laughing matter. We want to make sure that you, fellow theologian, can make sure that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you have trusted Jesus with your life and with your eternal destiny, so that whatever happens in these end times events, no matter what order they're in, you will have a place waiting for you with Christ in heaven. Since we don't know for sure when that day will be, or the hour or the minute when Jesus will come back again, we want to offer you a sample prayer so that anyone listening to this can talk with God and let him know that they want to make a choice to trust Christ. I mean, what would happen if Christ returned halfway through our discussion and the end time started and you weren't ready? That would be tragic. So if someone hasn't decided to trust Christ, we want to give you that opportunity right now. So Clark, why don't you offer a sample prayer right now, up front, before we get started, and then we'll launch into some of the important discussions about these end time matters. That's a really good idea. I'll do that. And you could pray a prayer that could sound something so simple, just like this. God, I realize, looking at the state of our world right now, that we could be living in the end times. I mean, there are so many things that are spoken about in the Bible that appear that they might actually be happen happening. Now, we don't know. We don't know the day nor the hour. 
but we do know that it's up to you, the Father. And whenever that time comes, we want to be ready. And so I want to be ready. And I could just lay my life before you and say, forgive me of my sins. Help me to become a true, genuine follower of Christ. I just want to be a Jesus follower. And I want to build my life around all of his teachings, knowing that your Holy Spirit is the one who brings all of his teachings to my mind and to my heart, and to help me incorporate those teachings into my daily habits. I need that, and I want that. I want to be a Christ follower, and I want to know absolutely with assurance that I have a place waiting for me in heaven, that you're preparing for me. And so thank you for doing that. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for your grace, because I know I can't do it in my own strength. And so I just surrender into your will. And it's a sweet surrender, because I know now that I have somebody to walk with me through all these crazy events in the world. And that when the time is right, I'm going to be in heaven forever and a part of that new creation. And I thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Now, hopefully all of us have secured our eternal future. If not, back up and go through that pair section again. It's that important. Yeah. Okay, now that that's settled, we want to present sort of a glossary of terms that will help us understand what we're talking about when we discuss this part of theology, which is called eschatology, or the study of the end of history and the beginning of God's planned future. So let's begin with a term that many have heard about, even though the word for this event isn't used in the English translations of the Bible. Why don't you give us a rundown of some basics related to the future event called the rapture? Very good. And I have to say that when I start discussing this, I do understand that there are those who don't know a whole lot about Christianity. And this term in itself can even become a starting point for some jokes because there are ways that certain people who believe in this kind of thing are thought of as being kind of uh, believers in mythology or that they might be a little goofy. And yet there are enough really solid things in scripture, enough evidence for us to know that even though the term itself is not used, the concept is very prevalent in scripture. So we want you to know about it. It's called the rapture, the rapture of the church. And it's based on a few important New Testament scriptures. This event is the one during which Christ is going to, quote, come in the clouds to snatch away all those who trust in him. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And it sounds a little absurd to some. It sounds fantastic. But that's the kind of language used by Paul to describe this event. And sometimes when people in the New Testament use descriptors like that, it's because it's hard for us to completely grasp. And so they're using fantastical terms because it is going to be fantastic. We don't know specifically how it's going to look, but we know it's going to happen. At this specific time in history, the dead in Christ, meaning that if we have died with our bodies, but we were believers in Christ, they will be resurrected. They will be taken into God's presence. They'll be taken to heaven too. From our perspective today, this is the next major event in the eschatological timeline. So let me insert here a slightly more expanded definition of the word eschatology, just so we'll be on the same page. Eschatology is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. Okay, that's just, uh, instead of just generically saying in times, we know that there's going to be death and judgment and final destiny. That's important for theologians 
because we need to understand that there will be a judgment. Well, many scholars believe that the rapture is imminent and that no other biblical prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. Another way of describing the rapture could be the reuniting of believers with Jesus Christ at his second coming. Some define it as the dead literally rising up to meet Christ in the air. Others believe that this is sort of poetic language that conveys a feeling that we believers will feel like when we see Christ once again, when he returns. In any case, the rapturous feeling believers will have is something worth talking about, and it's something to look forward to. Like so many things in the spiritual realm, it's easy for us to try to use earthly language to describe things that we just can't fully imagine. And in our opinion, this is one of those things. We believe it's going to happen. I am fully convinced, 100% convinced that it is going to take place. I'm just not 100% convinced that it's going to take place in exactly the way some people try to describe it. As Paul said about some spiritual realities, now when we're on earth, it's as though we're looking through a mirror dimly or like a foggy mirror. See 1 Corinthians 13, 12. But one day we will see clearly. And that day, the one that the New Testament writers talk about as the day of his return, will be a glorious day. It has also been depicted as a day full of rejoicing, as when a bridegroom is reunited with his bride, because as we've discussed in previous episodes, in the Jewish culture, which Jesus and his followers were familiar with, there was a season when the groom was kept separate from the bride-to-be, and then the groom's father would finally tell the son, okay, go get your bride. And when the groom showed up, it was party time. It was real celebration, and there was going to be great feasting, and those who were invited to the wedding banquet got to participate in that wonderful event. So that's kind of an analogy of what it's going to be like when believers are reunited with the groom, Jesus Christ. So when that happens, when we see Jesus face to face, all of our misperceptions, all of our distortions about how it will happen will become instantly irrelevant. <laughs> all the speculation about how and when are going to fall away into a big pile of unimportance because we're going to be ecstatic or enraptured by being in the presence of the one who poured out his grace so we could enjoy him and being in his presence and so we can share in life everlasting without the presence of sin to mess up the experience. Going to be a great day. Yep. Another event in the timeline of end time events is the rise of what the Bible calls the Antichrist. In one of the end time timelines put forward by theologians, particularly those who will follow the pre-tribulation view, we'll talk more about that in a minute, mm -hmm. after the church is taken out of the way, and we find this in 2 Thessalonians 2, a satanically empowered man will gain worldwide control with promises of peace. And we see that both in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Revelation 13 and Daniel 9. This guy is a horrible, horrible guy, and we can speculate if we're looking forward to the end times as being something in the very new future, somebody on the earth today. So, do we know who it is? No. Has there been speculation? Oh, man, yes. All the way back to Emperor Nero, to Barack Obama. I mean, even Ronald Reagan, they said it has to be Reagan because each of his names has six letters. So there's 666 right in you know, physical form, in human form right there. Uh, just about every controversial figure in history, including Hitler, 
has been called the Antichrist by some who are looking to try to force their perspective of end times into their current day. <laughs> the key is we don't know at this point, and we may not until after the church is taken out of the world. Right. Now, he will also be aided by another man who is called the false prophet. And this person heads up a worldwide religious system that requires the worship of the Antichrist. So we have Satan himself, the Antichrist, the false prophet, often called the unholy trinity. Uh, three bad dudes looking to wreak havoc on the world as the church is taken out. Yeah, good to know. And another major season or a period of history in these timelines that scholars have been studying about and trying to figure out, it's called the tribulation. The tribulation is a period of seven years in which God's judgment is poured out on sinful humanity. We see that talked about quite a bit in Revelation. The Antichrist's rise to power is associated with this time period. Now, there are different opinions, as you know, probably, especially if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, there are different opinions about when this rapture is going to take place. Some say it's just prior to the tribulation. That's the pre-tribulation people. Others will say, no, I think it's going to happen midway through that seven-year period. So that would be a mid-trib, mid-tribulation. Others say it's going to happen after the tribulation, which means that believers will have to live all the way through that seven-horrible-year period, and then will be raptured. That's post-tribulation. And still others say that's not even a literal seven years, and so that's metaphoric, and therefore they call it an ah tribulation, ah meaning not. It's not a literal seven-year period. In that mindset, they're thinking of it as being more that we all have different types of tribulation, but they're not thinking about it as being a worldwide kind of tribulation with major world events. They think of it as being more personal. They think that the individual is raptured the moment that they see Jesus face to face, which means that every believer has their own personal rapture after their own personal tribulation. So it's all very personal oriented rather than worldwide. I haven't met a lot of ah tribulation folks. In fact, I don't think I know a single one who actually subscribes to that, although I know they're out there because they write books about it. <laughs> My hunch is that most biblical theologians find themselves in either one of the pre, mid, or post-trib groups but what they agree with is there is going to be some horrible things happening on the earth. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And then believers are going to be enraptured or caught up in Christ. For those who believe in a literal tribulation on earth during that time, for the pre-trib folks, the church will be in heaven. It's thought that at this time, the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb will both occur in heaven. For those who think the church will endure the first half of the tribulation, the mid-tribbers, the church will be removed from the earth halfway through that seven-year period. Not too many people, although there are some, believe that the church will have to endure all the way through that great tribulation before they are reunited with Christ. So, like I've said, there have been some extremely intelligent theological scholars who have written extensively after their studies, and they don't all agree on these differences. And that, in our opinion, means that we're not supposed to know with certainty the exact timeline. Otherwise, we could lose our focus on what Jesus said we should be doing until he comes back. We need to be busy about the kingdom work, and we need to be sharing the good news with as many people as possible. 
you know, it could be today, it could be tomorrow. We have no idea when it will be. We don't know whether some of what we've been through is part of the tribulation. We just, we don't have any idea. But as you say, we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And there are still things that need to be done, or we would have already been removed from the earth uh, as part of God's perfect timing. So another event in these end times events is what the Bible refers to as the Battle of Gog and Magog. And there's been extensive writing on these as well. But what we see is that in the first part of the tribulation, a great army from the north, in alliance with several other countries from the Middle East and Africa, attacked Israel and is defeated by God's supernatural intervention. We find that in the later chapters of Ezekiel. Some writers of commentary place this battle just before the start of the tribulation. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure who Gog and Magog are, although the speculation seems to point towards Russia as one of the leading factors, possibly Iran as another of those factors. But when we look at today's event, at the time of this recording, Hamas has just attacked Israel in a big way. Israel is responding in uh, with a huge massive force. Hezbollah is from the north attacking Israel from Syria and Lebanon. Iran is, is calling for a huge um, uh, destructive force to fall upon Israel. Iran is currently in alignment with Russia. Uh, kind of makes us think perhaps this is uh, either this battle starting or a precursor to it or um, a birth pang of what's going to come later. Uh, it's a, a pretty serious situation, but what we do know is from God's word is Israel will survive, will be victorious over all of these forces that are sitting in opposition to uh, what Israel is and what it stands for. They're still God's chosen people. Um, it's a very serious situation. And what we're also seeing is because Israel is, Israel is retaliating, a lot of the nations of the world are turning on Israel because they're fighting back. You know, you look at it in light of what the Bible says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the rulers of the uh, of the areas of darkness. Uh, we can see that those uh, dark rulers and principalities and things are um, influencing world leaders and other nations against the nation of Israel. Well, you're not kidding. And this kind of harkens back a little bit, what's happening today harkens back a little bit to something we studied in our small group just last week, because we were looking at a king of Judah called Jehoshaphat, and uh, he was being led in a situation where there were three different people groups coming in at them, and there was a huge threat. He decided it was time to inquire of the Lord, which he did, and then God inspired with his Holy Spirit, this prophet who came down through the line of the Levites, the priests, priestly tribe. And he said, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. You do need to go out, but don't have to worry about sharpening your swords or anything, because uh, that's my interpretation of it. Because they got the choir together instead of getting the army together. They went out singing praises, and they stood at this area because they were going to suppose, supposedly watch this army coming in through this pass. And what God did in that situation was he turned those three groups against each other, and they took care of each other so that Israel didn't even have to intervene. And so there's historical evidence that God can do this for Israel. 
And he has done it for Israel several times. God always has a way of keeping his promises, and he has promised to keep them intact as a people group because they are his chosen people, because it was through them that all the nations will be blessed by the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So he's continuing to keep his word. Now, then we also have this other major event being portrayed for us in Scripture. It's an awful event called the Abomination of Desolation. There are some differences of opinion about when that either took place or will take place. At the midway point of the seven-year tribulation, some scholars think that the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel and show his true colors. The Jews will be scattered. Many of them will turn to the Lord, realizing that Jesus is their Savior. A great persecution will break out against all those who believe in Christ. Some theologians believe that this abomination of desolation has already taken place when an evil king sacrificed pigs on the altar of God in the temple, as we read about in the Old Testament and in some of the apocryphal books. That was in defiance of Yahweh. If that's the case, then we've already been cleared to have takeoff for the end times. <laughs> You're cleared for takeoff. Ever since Jesus came on the scene, some scholars say, we have entered the end times. And Rick just mentioned that at the beginning of this episode. Many scholars believe that Jesus has already ushered in the next to the last chapter in this grand scheme of history, so that the next major event will be the rapture, whenever that relates to the tribulation. So as you can see by some of these differing opinions, if some of these things actually have taken place, then we're primed and ready. We don't know when it could be, but it could be tomorrow. Many also believe that sacrificing the pig was a foreshadowing of something to happen in the future that will be even worse. Some can say, how could it possibly be worse? But if there is a future event, it's going to be bad. And it will be the Antichrist putting up an image of himself to be worshipped. And that could happen as well. That could very easily happen, especially since the false prophet is going to be preaching to the world that they must worship the Antichrist. Yeah. So why wouldn't he put up his own image in the temple that he has helped to rebuild, uh, saying it was for the Jews, but in fact, he built it for himself. So. We don't know which for sure, but either or both could be part of that process. Now, another biblical event that gets quite a bit of attention is called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, this is not that Bruce Willis movie about the asteroid. This is going to be so much worse. Yeah. Uh, in a very literal interpretation of the end time events as portrayed in the eschatological books of the Bible, you know, whether they be the, the prophets or Daniel or Revelation or even some of the uh, the Gospels, which have given us some glimpses into the future. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns with the armies of heaven. And we find that in Mark 14. And he saves Jerusalem from annihilation and defeats the army of the nations who are fighting under the battle of the Antichrist, which we find in Revelation 19 which gives us an indication that it is one of the last events because it is so far into the book of Revelation. Right. Now, the Antichrist and the false prophet are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. We find that in Revelation 19.20. So just how large is this army supposed to be? You say 200 million, and you go, where in what? the world are we going to get that many people? But when we see... You know, what's happening in what some are calling the 
21st century axis of evil, which is Russia, Iran, and China, we can easily see that they could put together an army that would encompass that many people, especially as they're recruiting from the other Arab nations or those other nations that have turned their back on Israel. It's conceivable that an army of that size could be developed, but it's kind of hard to imagine just how big that is. I mean, this is going to be an epic battle. And one of the ways that I try to visualize that, uh, for, forgive me for quoting Tolkien, is <laughs> or Peter Jackson's interpretation of Tolkien, but if you look in the Lord of the Rings trilogy as put together by Peter Jackson, the third movie, Fellowship of the Ring, one of the, the very last scenes before the 14 curtain calls that we see, Aragon is in Gondor, and he says, we need to create a distraction so that Sam and Frodo can destroy the ring once and for all and destroy Sauron in the process. So I remember that. Yeah. How are we going to make this distraction? We're going to take the army that's left of Gondor and Rohan, and we're going to march to the Black Gate. Mm -hmm. And they get to the Black Gate, and they're all in front of it, and a bunch of things happen, and the forces of Mordor open the gate and they come out and surround this small little army of the men who are left after the other battles for Minas Tirith. This huge black army of orcs and trolls and other nasty creatures come out and totally surround them. And the battle starts. Frodo and Sam are making their way up to, to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. And there's the final fight between Frodo and Gollum and finally, the ring is cast into the lava below, and the final battle is, is essentially over because Sauron is destroyed. And the picture that I have that really, it kind of made me wonder what the heck is going on is all of the ground fell out from under mm -hmm. the dark army. And the army of men is left on this little plateau, uh, safe and sound. And to me, that's Israel when all is done and everything else will fall away because the power of God will destroy that vast army of 200 million people in opposition to the small state of Israel, which today has about 9 million people in it. It's an amazing picture and it's a great visual. And I'm glad that Peter Jackson depicted it the way he did, <laughs> because it does cement in your mind what can happen when there is a power so much greater than the one we typically think of. A biblical example of a scene kind of similar to this one as well is one that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 6. And this is that scene when the king of Aram sent a huge army with lots of chariots and horses to surround the city of Dothan. Let me read directly from that passage real quick. When the servant of the man of God, meaning Elisha's servant, got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. And what do you suppose happened next? Elisha says, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And the guy's probably thinking, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, where are they? And then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Again, not the movie. Right. 
Now, there was also a time when God did something extraordinary with Gideon's army. But in this instance, instead of adding thousands of soldiers to the army, God made sure that Gideon was trusting in God's power and strategy and not his own. And he gave instructions to trim Gideon's army way down to a very small number of soldiers. I think it was about 300. And God won the battle as the soldiers marched around the city, blowing trumpets. Now, these were not like uh, Doc Severinsen or Dizzy Gillespie. These were probably the uh, shofar ram's horn. And they broke some clay pots and they lit torches. And the army inside the camp were thrown into such confusion, thinking they were surrounded by a huge army, that they turned on each other. And the point is, even though the numbers of people mentioned in this prophesied battle of Armageddon seems really, really hard to believe, when God gets involved, anything is possible. And we tend to forget that God is a God of miracles, and things can take place that we have never seen before. Yes, indeed. And when that event happens, we are definitely going to recognize, if we're still around for it, we're going to recognize, yeah, only God could do that. That's just the way God works. And it's great to know that we can trust his power and he will carry things out. Even though we think that we know what's going to be happening, he will always do it in such a way that we'll think that has to have come from God. No other explanation. Now, there's a whole bunch more of these end time events that we want to talk about, but we're going to do that in part two of this discussion, mm -hmm. which we'll do next time. But should there be a fellow theologian who didn't take advantage of our prayer time earlier, we're going to give another opportunity. And there may be some other th fellow theologians who are already set their place in Christ's kingdom, mm -hmm. but maybe need a, a bit of prayer to understand the end times as they're outlined in the Bible. And so we want to pray for them that they have uh, full knowledge, that they have understanding, so that they can share with their sphere of influence the things that are about to unfold as they step into their mission field and try to reach those that they know for Christ as well. Good plan. Let me pray for both of these two people groups. Uh, one of them can be the person who's just for that first time saying, okay, yep, I get it. I want to seal the deal. And you could pray this. God, I really do understand now that I need to take action. I can't just drift along and expect that everything's going to turn out okay. I have to make a decision, and I'm doing that right now. I choose to follow you. I choose to place my life in your care. I choose your grace that will be poured out to forgive me of my sins. I choose to follow you as my spiritual guide into eternity. Whenever that rapture happens, I want to be ready. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your forgiveness. I'm now your child, and I want to walk with you for the rest of my life and into eternity. And Lord, for those who might have been walking with you for a time, I pray a couple of things. First of all, I pray that you would rekindle our faith in you because we tend to kind of get complacent and we forget that you're still the same God today that you were back in these Old Testament stories we read about. They weren't just stories, they're history. They're literal history. And we know that you have demonstrated your power in remarkable ways, and you will do so again in the future. So help us not to get lulled into a sense of complacency, but help ignite our hearts to the fact that you are still a powerful, almighty God, and we can trust you. You're an awesome God, and you're not just kidding around when it comes to this end-time stuff and the final judgment. 
we know that you mean business about this stuff. And so we want to follow you, knowing that you have a wonderful place prepared for everybody who continues to trust you and to walk with you through this lifetime and into eternity. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for bolstering our faith, reminding us that you still answer prayers and you can still do things that boggle the mind, that drop the jaw, and which cause us to recognize that we thought we might have known you, but we forget just how powerful you really are. And because you're a God who always fulfills his promises, we trust you to fulfill the end times promises in the way you're going to do it, knowing that we haven't figured out all the details, and that's okay. We just trust you. We're going to do the best we can with what we have left to work with, and may we be spokespersons for you, agents of grace and tellers of the good news to the people around us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for those reminders, because we do sometimes get complacent and get caught up in the day-to-day, the tyranny of the urgent, as somebody once said. And we still need to be reminded sometimes that we're here to do kingdom work. And uh, every day that we have is a day that we can do that. Yes, indeedy. And we're grateful that we get to follow a God who opens doors that we never thought could have been opened. And he can still have breakthrough moments in our lives to do things to show us that all these little tiny steps of obedience will have their reward one day. And we're grateful for that. We got much more to share about this whole end times timeline and some of the major events talked about in the scriptures. And so we've kind of divided this up, as Rick mentioned. So we do hope, fellow theologians, that you will join us next time for that episode of Monday Monday Afternoon afternoon. Theologians. 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 Theologians.